Hello, hello, and welcome back to Brainy Days, episode 9. So, just gonna tell you guys straight up from the beginning again, just to rip this band-aid off. Paul is again unable to join us this week, which is super unfortunate, but again, I'm really stubborn about getting <laughs> some of these episodes out sooner rather than later, just because I have so many more that I want to talk to you guys about and get on the air or whatever. It is a bummer that Paul won't be with us here again today, but he'll be back next week, I hope. Do you guys see a pattern? I hope not. <laughs> maybe maybe people really do tap out at episode seven. <laughs> now, I am just kidding. Uh, maybe I'll put that in there, see if he hears this and see, see what he says. I will be talking about something really, really cool, and it's basically going to be an introduction to something we're going to continue talking about next week. So I think that's a pretty good deal. I'm going to make it a pretty short episode. It's again, it's like a little more sciencey than previous episodes. Maybe not more sciencey than the last episode. That was that was pretty pretty intense with talking about the paper. But yeah, it's pretty cool. We're going to talk about something called optogenetics. But yeah, so it's going to be just me today. But today I feel a little bit better about saying, I think I'm going to try to make everybody's rainy days a little bit brainier today. So get ready. I feel like I gotta up the goof factor this time around. Like, if I'm going on my second episode without Paul here, then, uh, yeah, I feel like I have to be a little bit more entertaining. <laughs> I don't really... I don't really necessarily know how to joke to myself, but sometimes when I make fun of myself, people laugh, so. All right, I'm just going to kind of jump right into it. There are three things. What do we have here? So there are three things I want to talk about in brief. These are three very important concepts that somebody needs to understand before really being able to understand some of the methods and things that we do in neuroscience. It's Pretty incredible stuff, and some people think that it's kind of science fiction. In fact, in the trailer for the podcast, I had listed out a couple things we wanted to talk about in the future, and so Paul mentions at one point, oh, blah, 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 and we can even talk about science that might seem like science fiction, but is actually happening right now. And then I followed up with, like, controlling the brain with light. And then he goes, exactly. So I know that verbatim because I wrote the script for the <laughs> for the introduction trailer, but um, so... That's what we'll be talking about today. And what that's called is optogenetics. So opto, like O-P-T-O. Opto, right? Like optic. Optic fibers, right? Has to do with light. The optometrist, right? You might think of eyes when you think of the optometrist, but when you think of the eyes in neuroscience, the first thing you think of is usually light. <laughs> um, so optogenetics. And genetics just means... We're talking about the genetic material that makes up some of these cells. We can manipulate specific parts of the brain, specific types of cells, to turn on or off whenever we want. And so, since we now have this ability, to some extent, we are able to utilize it in research. And it's actually really, really crazy stuff. But before you understand anything about optogenetics, you're going to have to understand some of the basics about genetics and the basics about biology. This is always one of my favorite things to talk about when I'm talking to people outside of neuroscience and even biology because it's just so wild to me as a neuroscience student already that 
I can't even really imagine how some people out there like just accept this for what it is, but also I feel like a lot of people do accept it for what it is because they don't understand how crazy it is. So before I even talk about optogenetics, and again, I'm going to try to aim for like a half hour for this episode, but it is a lot to try to pack into one episode. Uh, So feel free, you know, someone suggested to me like, hey, maybe you should have a break session in the middle of your your podcast. And that's awesome. That's really cool. And I love the suggestions. Keep them coming, guys. (laughs) Um, I've been getting a lot of really good ones. But you know, there's a pause button. So feel free to tap the pause button if you if you need a break. (laughs) But yeah, no, I figured that was, you know, uh, a useful function if, if you do feel like you need a little a little break from the science. So let's just get into it. So basically there are three things I need to talk about before starting to talk about optogenetics at all. And that's going to be the bulk of the episode. Unless you want to skip to whatever, maybe I'll go back and put the timestamp in here or something. And you can want to just learn about optogenetics and what it is in a nutshell. Also, if you type optogenetics for beginners or what is optogenetics into google it has all these really cool things i was reading this article for for children actually for a little while before i realized it literally was called like whatever science for kids and anyway so it was helpful regardless it was a very well thought out article (laughs) on optogenetics so to begin the three things we're going to talk about are transcription we're going to talk about translation and we're going to talk about transgenic animals all right so they shouldn't be too hard to remember because they all have the same prefix um you know what i'm just going to jump right into it but i will define each of those really quick transcription right it's how dna becomes something called rna right dna stands for deoxyribonucleic acid and rna stands for ribonucleic acid and translation is the production of proteins through reading these strands of RNA that are produced through transcription. And then transgenic animals is a whole other monster of its own to talk about, but basically you can just think of it as an animal whose genetic code has been messed with in a purposeful way by humans in order to manipulate a very specific population of cells within that animal. But other than that, the animal is pretty much the same as it would be in nature. All right, so let's jump right into it. So transcription, I'm going to need you guys to maybe, maybe this is a good episode to like sit back and close your eyes and try to be imaginative and try to picture these things. First thing I need you to, to imagine is basically being in a cell, right? You want to imagine what it's like on the inside of a cell. So what that is really like in a nutshell is just a million billion things floating around all the time. These things being proteins, all having different functions. Don't worry about their functions for right now. What you are worried about is this big giant ball in the center of the cell. And that's called the nucleus. And inside the nucleus, there's this really, really tangled, tightly, tightly wound up string, double-stranded string, and that's the DNA. There's only one single strand. In other words, this is one molecule that lives in the center of every cell. Think about how... (laughs) Think about how wild that is just for a second. There's one really tightly strung up, super duper long, crazy intricate, very, very complicated molecule that lives in the center of every single cell of our bodies. That's our DNA. A lot of you know it takes the shape of a a double helix, right? I think it's a a right turn curve or something like that. 
which just means it curves one way as it goes up instead of the other. It's like a big deal in the biology world. I remember in my undergrad, they made this like really nice fireplace and it cost like a million whatever dollars. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, it costs a million. That's the million dollar fireplace. First of all, it was a dumb fireplace. It was just not functional at all because it's really pretty and really beautiful and people would gather around it. But it was just this piece of glass in front of it. So it just looked pretty, but you couldn't even, you could put your hand up to the glass and see the fire behind it, but you couldn't feel any, any warmth. Anyway, so the point being was going vertical up from the center of the, the mantle of the fireplace all the way up to the ceiling of this giant building that it was in, the, the campus center, right? It was a strand, it was a big giant double helix strand and it was really cool and all the biologists were like, wow, cool, cool, cool. Until you can imagine though, one day, one of the mega biology nerds there was really disappointed it wasn't me, to be totally honest, but <laughs> looked at it and was like, <laughs> that's incorrect. That's a left turn curve, and everybody knows that DNA has a right turn curve. And I, people were just like, okay, wow. How dare we? How dare we fall for these shenanigans? So that was thoroughly disappointing when we looked it up, and there's just this permanently incorrect version of DNA on our million dollar fireplace. <laughs> so there are all these different proteins always floating around within the nucleus. I'm going to be quick on this. We can have another episode in the future regarding the specifics of transcription, or maybe we'll just talk more about it and people will become more comfortable with it. But the act of transcription is when one specific molecule, this molecule is called a helicase, it attaches to the double-stranded DNA and it basically unzips it like a zipper, you can imagine. Unzips it. It's open on either side. That allows other proteins to come in. These kinds of proteins, they're called polymerase, RNA polymerase. Uh, there's different kinds of polymerase and whatever. You can see where it gets really intricate. It's like I'm letting you guys in on a little secret. It's like, biologists aren't really smart. We just memorize all these different functions and it's, it's just, you know, exists. So it makes us seem smart. But anyway, so uh, these RNA polymerase, they come in and they, they read the DNA. The DNA, it's made up of four main, what are called nitrogenous bases. And those four main nitrogenous bases are denoted by the letters A, T, C, G, right? They're adenine, thymine, cytosine and guanine so right that's a t c g a is connect to t's and c is connect to g's that's all you have to think about what you have to imagine is just that each half of the dna connects to the other half of the dna like if you slice it down vertically down the middle and there's if there's an a on one side it connects to a t and if there's a c on the one side then it connects to a g and vice versa for those same letters but they only connect to each other so the RNA polymerase, it comes in and what it does is it reads these different combinations of the nitrogenous bases that make up the strand of DNA. And again, the nitrogenous bases are those letters I mentioned before, A, T, C, G. For example, you see a triplet in DNA and it says C, G, G. It'll be transcribed to a piece of RNA that says the opposite. So if it says C, G, G, it'll take other cytosines and guanines from the cellular environment and put them together so that it's in the opposite direction so that if it says CGG the transcribed RNA will say GCC this this is where it gets a little complicated okay so that's one confusing thing the RNA becomes a reflection of the DNA and that is what transcription is is the production of this RNA and we're able to tell the direction of the DNA because of other 
complicated molecular biological factors, but we are able to tell which side is going quote-unquote up and which side is going quote-unquote down. We're able to denote that. And so one difference between RNA and DNA is that instead of ATCG, it has AUCG. It has adenine. And instead of thymine, it has uracil. That's U-R-A-C-I-L. And then it also has cytosine and guanine. So in RNA, which could be single-stranded, could be double-stranded. Right now, we're just imagining a single strand of, of RNA that's being produced from reading a specific single strand of unzipped double-stranded DNA, if that makes sense. I'm not doing a very good job of painting a picture, but if you are following, it's, it's, it's really, really cool to think about. So now there's a strand of RNA floating around within the cell. This is specifically called messenger RNA or mRNA. And that's because its job is to leave the nucleus inside the cell, go outside of the nucleus, and become translated. So number two, talking about translation, translation is reading mRNA, which again, reminder, RNA is, I wish you guys could see my, my hand motions and stuff right now. I'm like, maybe this will help if I, if I gesture really, really loudly and really strongly at my computer screen. Um, DNA is transcribed into RNA, and then RNA is translated. And what is it translated into? RNA is translated into proteins. It's translated into proteins by being read by ribosomes. Ribosomes are an organelle, right? An organelle is just something that's floating around in the cell that has a specific function within the cell. Ribosomes, I'm sure a lot of us learned about in biology, are the main organelles involved in protein translation. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this concept, but maybe don't know what it's called. And so it's called translation. Transcription is when DNA is unzipped and one side of it is read by protein to create a strand of RNA. And translation is when the RNA leaves the nucleus and is read by a ribosome, which creates a strand of amino acids, which, in other words, is a protein. A strand of amino acids is one protein. Amino acids are what make up a protein or a subunit of a protein. If a protein is a small protein, it's because it has a smaller amount of amino acids that make up its physical shape. So, the RNA is read by the ribosomes, specifically in groups of three. Everything is in threes. And so if it says CGG, the ribosome, which, fun fact, is actually a whole other type of RNA too. <laughs> it's called rRNA, ribosomal RNA, whose function is to read the other kind of RNA <laughs> that comes out of the nucleus, right? So it reads it, and then as it reads it, basically all you have to know is it reads, it reads these triplets, and every triplet matches a specific amino acid. There are 20 amino acids in our bodies. Amino acids, I'm sure you've heard a lot of any of your friends who are interested or maybe you're interested in health and fitness, we need to get our amino acids in. That's because it's the, the basis of proteins. And so with more amino acids, we can have more protein in our body and with more protein, we have more functionality within ourselves. Okay, sorry for moving a little quickly. I'm trying to make this a little bit more general than some of the previous episodes because this is more of like, like I said, an episode to kind of like give us a to make us, you know, eligible and qualified to understand the next topic, which is optogenetics. And I plan to talk more about it at the end, but I'm hoping that Paul can join us for next week and talk a little bit specifically more about how it's used in neuroscience and all the, the nitty gritty of that kind of stuff. All right, dope, moving on. This would be a good time for a break 
if you guys were getting a little overwhelmed with the science so far. That is just how proteins come into existence, right? That is just an introduction on how proteins happen. <laughs> so they go off and do stuff. Some of these proteins are those receptors that I brought up in previous episodes, talking about serotonin, for instance, and serotonin receptors. So after some of these proteins are created and these receptors are born, they're just these proteins floating around. They get sent to the membrane. And the membrane of the cell is just like the outer, the skin of the cell, I've, I've recalled it in the past. It goes to the very outer membrane of the cell, the outer layer of the cell. It embeds itself within the layer, and now it's ready to, to do its job. It'll wait for whatever molecule is activated, and it'll either influx positively charged or negatively charged ions. And there's a bunch of these receptors being sent all the time, and now it's ready. Now the cell has these receptors. It's ready to go. Okay, so here's the complicated part. <laughs> In specific cells, specific regions of DNA are activated. And we know this through a series of very, very complicated mechanisms. But over time, scientists have been able to discover genetic markers that are only transcribed in specific cell types. So we can differentiate specific cell types based on the types of proteins that they express. And the types of proteins they express reflects the section of DNA that is being transcribed in the nucleus. Okay, so that's transcription, that's translation. Transgenic animals, basically, I said it in the very beginning, very briefly, a transgenic animal is just a normal laboratory animal who, imagine every animal is having one strand of DNA, right? Ultimately, we identify with one strand of DNA. We have a million bajillion strands throughout our body, one in each cell of our body. Imagine just for a second that an animal, any animal of your choice, has one strand of DNA. Imagine taking a chunk of that DNA, cut it right in the middle, and open it up and put another, like a, like, think about railroad tracks. And you're looking down at railroad tracks, and there's these two vertical pieces, and then all these middle pieces. Slice it horizontally, and then put another piece of the railroad tracks inside of there. Think of the railroad tracks as the DNA, right? and then closing it, sealing it back up. So now you have this, this foreign piece of DNA inside of what was originally there. So the word trans, where that comes from, is from somewhere else, basically. Trans, or, trans could mean, you know, to the opposite side, right? So transgenic animals, what that means is just an animal that has been biologically manipulated, genetically modified, if you will, to express a specific protein that it isn't it doesn't normally express in the wild or in in the laboratory if it was just to be born naturally. So here's the crazy part, another conversation for another day, but in a nutshell, scientists can take DNA from other animals and put it into laboratory animals, such as a mouse or a rat or a fly or a fish, right? These are examples of transgenic animal models. And and there are others, but those are just a few examples. And they inject it into the embryo, the fertilized, developing embryos of these different types of animals. And then hopefully one in the bunch that they try to inject with the DNA will successfully work. And that animal will grow up. And then you breed it with other animals that either do or don't have, have the same genetic modification or a different one. But... It's very complicated stuff, but it's really, really cool. These transgenic animals, they're transgenic because 
trans again different genic dna right transgenic different dna <laughs> animal different dna in this animal basically but uh they're very very important for studying different areas of the brain so that is pretty much enough to go into just the idea of optogenetics and again the goal is to come back next week and have paul talk a little bit more deeply about optogenetics if he's willing and uh, not giving up on me forever. <laughs> uh, so optogenetics. Why you needed to know everything before what I'm about to tell you is because it's very complicated. There are some proteins, such as those that reside in the retina in our eyes. When we look at things and light hits these proteins, some of these proteins are photosensitive, meaning they can change shape when light hits them. So when they change shape, it allows the influx of either positively charged or negatively charged ions. Ions, just small, electrically charged molecules. I've said this in the past, but the more you hear this kind of stuff, the more comfortable you become with it. When you let in positively charged ions, it activates the cell, it turns it on. When you allow the influx of negatively charged ions, it quiets the cell down, it turns it off. Or it inhibits the cell, is what you would call it, right? Activation, inhibition, on, off, there you go. So... In the eyes, there are these proteins that are called opsins, right? In general, they're called opsins. And these are the proteins that change shape when they are hit with light. Changing shape when you're a protein is, that's the whole thing. You know, every time a protein is activated, for instance, it's different than when a neuron is activated. A neuron is activated, it's electrical. A protein is activated, it's usually structural. Usually means the protein is physically changing shape. Sometimes the shape is changing because of electrical things and whatever. But just think about it. That's, like a, that's an easier way to think about it for now. Anyway, so we can take the genetic code for some of these opsins that are in other animals, for instance, like algae. We can take that genetic code, put it into another animal, have this animal grow up, and have that genetic code have those specific receptors that respond to light express themselves and what i mean by express themselves is go through the whole process of transcription and translation and then integration right into the membrane of the cell so that it's ready to work and ready to go you can do all that in a specific area of the brain with a specific cell type so you can do a very very specific experiment regarding the function of a type of cell in a specific area of the brain that alone <laughs> should be mind-blowing just the fact that we can get a genetic code anywhere to be expressed specifically anywhere in the brain is wild to me but that's just step one now just like there are all these other millions of receptors now we have in these specific cell populations specific area of the brain we have some of these cells the only the ones that we want to express this protein are expressing the protein and that's the only cell in the brain or those are the only cells in the brain that are sensitive to light now and now if you were to shine light onto those neurons in the brain that express this photosensitive receptor it'll allow the influx of either positively charged ions or negatively charged ions which will either depending on whatever the scientist is looking for whatever question they are asking they can have it activate those cells or deactivate those cells, or inhibit those cells. Basically, scientists can say, okay, I want to put this specific group of cells in the amygdala. I want to be able to turn that on whenever I want. 
and then have an animal do something and see if, if those cells, that population makes a difference. So they stick a wire surgically, very humanely. They do this really, really intricate surgery where they put this fiber optic cable, basically it's very ultra thin fiber optic cable, goes in down into the brain wherever they want it to go, wherever they need it to go. It can go in both sides of the brain. It can go in one side of the brain. Usually scientists will do both sides at the same time, just so you can be like, oh, look, if both sides are activated or both sides are deactivated. It does this. And then they're able to let the mouse recover, mouse or rat or whatever you're doing. You can do this with a bunch of different kinds of animals. I'm using mice and rats as examples because those are the ones I used for, for research in the past. And so once you do this, you let the mouse or the rats recover for a couple weeks from the surgery because scientists aren't monsters, guys. <laughs> We're actually really good to the animals sometimes, but uh, or at least I was. Once they recover, you can take them out of their cage. They can walk around. They're, they're kind of hooked up to this apparatus, but they're, they're able to freely move and walk around, and you can have them do specific tasks, specific behavioral tasks. But the thing here is you can have them do the task, see what happens, and then you can have them do the task again with the light shining on the inside of their brain, these fiber optic cables, right at the very end of them, they shine light. And the only cells that will activate in response to that light will be the ones that are expressing the genetically modified portion of the DNA, which is what contributes to, you know, the production of the photosensitive receptors in those specific cells. And that way, only those specific cells will be photosensitive, if that makes sense. I know that's really confusing, but if you go back and listen to this, I promise it makes some sense. So in a nutshell, Optogenetics, really, really wild. You have to first understand transcription and then translation and then transgenic animals. Because if you don't understand these three things, optogenetics won't, you won't really get what it is. It's not mind control, which is, it's the closest thing we probably have to mind control right now, but it is not mind control. And in PopSci, it can be perceived as mind control. And so it's really important to understand this type of science, this type of technique what it can teach us, what it has taught us already. And this episode was just supposed to be a little bit of a brief on the understandings of, you know, transcription, translation, transgenics, and that kind of stuff before we talk more about optogenetics. Now I want you guys to think about it more, maybe go Google it or something. Like there's some really, really cool stuff. Maybe just go, honestly, go watch like a transcription, translation animation on YouTube or something. <laughs> it's really, really really interesting biology is just um, it's it's the ocean of our bodies it's like and wow that sounds like such a hippie thing to say but it's like so crazy every single thing you know is just so wild and if you once you understand transcription and translation you'll understand a lot more about general biology and how things we eat affect us and how our dna being affected by things like you know overexposure to uv rays and stuff like that how it can contribute to different proteins being produced or it can contribute to damaged proteins being produced, and that could damage our, our cells and that kind of stuff. So it's really, really cool to understand. But uh, yeah, sorry this was, again, a little heavy on the science, but really, really interesting stuff. Next week will hopefully be part two of this episode, and we have lots more coming at you guys for, for brainy days. So don't worry about that. That's just me singing it because I'm alone, so I feel fearless until I put this onto the internet. All right, so I think that's going to do it for today. Hopefully I did a pretty good job of describing transcription and translation and what transgenic animals are. But um, yeah, there was no mental health in there really, but understanding some of that will really, really help you understand some of the 
some of the stuff regarding mental health and especially regarding like serotonin and dopamine, it'll help you understand that stuff a lot better and at a more significant and deeper level for sure. I hope everybody's staying safe out there. Quarantine's not taking any breaks apparently anytime soon. Yeah, just stay healthy, make good decisions, wash your hands, and uh, I'll talk to you guys next week where I attempt part two at making all of your rainy days a little bit brainier. All right, everybody. Peace out. See you next week.